Hello and welcome to Goragera of This Town, a 2000 pop and Kenima pop retrospective. I am as always too sleepy Dreamcast, and with me, other you get the joke. <laughs> I am the combiner robot Sybil. <laughs> Are you enjoying the new Super Robot Tactics game? Yes, I am. Good, good. Well, quick review. Quick 10 seconds review of it. It is the third time in a week that a lab coat girl with glasses who has unhinged scientific views has been thrown into my path, and I think the universe is telling me something after I bought a new coat. <laughs> Ah, you you need to start mixing estrogen yourself. I could do that. I could just do you that. You could. I know people who do that. Yes. I could actually use work u- equipment to do that. Uh, anyhow, we are back in, 2000, in 2003. In 2003. How does it feel to be back in 2003? Does it feel better? Um. Do you, do you feel less political dread? Well, the thing is... We're also in an era, since I did the research this week, of a big change for the music industry. A big change? Oh, yeah. You see, uh, we are now in early 2003, and let's just kick off the history of American Hi-Fi and their second album, The Art of Losing. You see, uh, through 2002, American Hi-Fi workshopped a lot of these songs and the opening of what would become this album. Uh, They went on the Warp Tour because that's what you were required to do if you were a top 100 artist in the pop-punk genre at this time. They ended up filming a music video for The Art of Losing in Hayes, Kansas. The, The story goes, according to the band, that a fan just handed them their home address after a show they played on the tour. And they went, yeah, we could do something. We should do something with this. And that turned into just filming a very impromptu concert at that guy's house and inviting whoever they wanted around from the city. Oh, that's pretty cool. Sort of, I guess. So that's actually what's happening in the Art of Losing video. Huh, okay. I haven't watched the videos Part of what I mean about this feeling like a real throwback is after doing a lot of modern EPs and independent albums, I forgot just how much filler would be put onto a record, especially one this short, to make it seem like it was worth your money. You didn't like this? This is basically SR71 without the misogyny. 
Let's be honest. I had fun listening to this album, but the back third of the album is very hard for me to get any discussion out of, save a couple of lyrical foibles. That is fair. That That is very much fair. I... I am sort of indifferent to this record. It's it's an alt rock sort of like very straightforward kind of things and it's thing and it's like eh, whatever. There is an additional B side to this record which I intended to look up and did not just because I want to know what the track When the Breeders Were Big is about. Oh. <laughs> That's real. <laughs> it is on the single version of The Art of Losing. So if you happen to buy the single, both because this is 2003 and digital music is starting to become a thing, Island Def Jam actually decided every time they put out a radio single, they were going to make them available as digital downloads to try and use instant audience reaction based off who was picking them up how quickly. So every single on this record ended up just getting put out for you to individually pick up. And uh, I don't know what the results of that were, but we're going to have to realize we're about to enter the age of iTunes coming into play and singles being a thing that you sell outside of compact discs and a lot of other changes for the industry. Oh boy, I can't wait to buy the new Blink single as an NFT. <sighs> no, no, we're not in the doomed future timeline yet. <laughs> Are you in the doomed present timeline? Right now we're in 2003, and the worst thing that could happen is someone quoting Taxman from the Beatles on your record. Most of the rest of the history ties to that opening track, which was the killer single off of the album. So let's go to the Art of Losing off the Art of Losing. This is, uh, so you know what this song makes me think about? Mm hmm. Elephant by the White Stripes came out this year. I could see that. It's a, I, it's a better record than this. Uh, I'm sorry, Mr. American Hi Fi, if you still arrive and listening to our podcast, but. This very much sounds like a sanitized sort of version of that sound, especially with that kind of like, you know, it's less garagey. Of course, the White Stripes have are sort of like garage rock, but composition-wise, it has that like sort of like, you know, sort of March-like quality to it, and uh, poppy chorus, and it's like we could be listening to the White Stripes, we could be listening to the Strokes instead of listening to. American hi-fi. 
For what it's worth, Mr. American Hi-Fi, Stacy Jones, is very alive, and his career has gone in so many more commercial directions than this group. Oh, okay. I'm glad he's alive. Yeah. He is the musical director and drummer for Miley Cyrus, uh, has been a touring drummer for Matchbox 20 since 2012, and does a lot of studio work for a variety of artists you would probably recognize, like The Flaming Lips, Against Me, Madonna, Farouk Assault, etc. Cobra Starship. There is a wild collection of names, though. You understand that there is a wild collection of names. Yep. He was. He's also been the engineer for some Plain White Tees albums. Imagining jumping from, like, a, a Flaming Lip session to a Cobra Starship session. Or Madonna. Modern Madonna. I was trying to forget that Madonna still makes music, but thank you for making that harder for me. Don't worry. I have another production surprise for you later on this record. Ooh, production surprise. My favorite dessert. Mm -hmm. This record is like the fucking nerdcore of post-punk. Like, the reference where the kid... Like, every song references something. It is... Almost endearing in how, like, like this one reference were the kids in America at the end. It's just like, I, I guess. Someone on Genius also thought they were referencing Lit. Uh, Tim Allen noise? They said, I'm my own worst enemy once. <laughs> well, that's a stretch. <laughs> that's For what it's a, worth, the on. annotation does say, perhaps a reference to Lit. Perhaps. Perhaps you should keep your annotations to yourself. Where's the fun in that? That's what genius is for. <laughs> We're back in 2003. Every song is about AIDS or secretly being gay. Not in pop punk. No, none of the fucking people are, like, not straight. <laughs> oh, you mean pop punk in 2003 seems like one of the whitest, straightest genres around? Tell me more. You know, we're not at Blue Wizard's Blue Album level of straight, but we're there. It's basically that. It's like we're discussing different levels of infinity here. I don't know. I would say the Blue Album is the most queer-colored album from Weezer. There is like me saying that the platforming in Shin Megami Tensei Five is the best platforming in a JRPG. It doesn't mean a lot. Fair. I'm just saying, we all know the queerest Weezer album is Pinkerton, and beyond that, uh, they get straighter every time. What level of straight is Van Weezer? Van Weezer is so straight that if you play it around a gay person, they will immediately just, like, turn and look for the nearest member of the opposite sex as an excuse to leave the room. <laughs> okay. You could show up at a Weezer concert with your girlfriend, Ellie, and immediately you would be going, Dick! Dick! Just calling out in the audience. It is wild assuming that if I had a girlfriend, she wouldn't have a dick. I also just wanted to give the incredible mental image of you at a Weezer show screaming out, Dick! Dick! <laughs> See? There's so many levels. There are, there are a lot of levels. It's like um, Mario 3D World. <laughs> Look, I'm preparing for the fucking Nerdcore episode. I need to prepare my, my random references to things. Don't worry. I'm saving the Nerdcore episode for a few weeks out. Okay. I'm preparing. Okay. 
<laughs> I am scared. I'm not going to make... Look, I made a co-host so miserable an entire show died this past week. You, 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 uh, what if you up the ante and you make your co-host so miserable that the co-host dies? Because that might happen with the Nerdcore episode. No, no, we covered the worst Hellraiser movie, and then, as soon as I got the track for that episode, it was, pick one more and we're done with the entire horror movie podcast. <laughs> That's how miserable that was. What, what, what is the worst Hellraiser movie? Hellraiser Judgment, the one that has the angels. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't fucking know. This is fine. It's... It's weirdly like... You know, it's ultra. It's it's more punk. This record is definitely more punky than their previous record. There was a lot more guitar and shit. But it's also like still clearly not rooted in punk. They still clearly want to do like more of like sort of an alt rock rock and roll thing. And it's it it's difficult for me to find a lot of faults in this music. I think there's I don't know, there's a lot of self-awareness and there's a lot of playfulness in it and the chorus is alright. It's just not good enough. <laughs> it's like, I can see that y'all are putting the effort here and I appreciate it. It's just not good enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not good enough to leave any lasting impression on me or on the world at large. <laughs> This isn't going to be an easy record to talk about because, yeah, this is the big single, and I don't think it's the best track on the record, but it's the one that got the biggest push. It's the one that has the most stories about it between the concert video in a guy's hometown and the fact that it was used as a single on the Lindsay Lohan, Jamie Lee Curtis Freaky Friday from this same time period. Ooh, nice. Yeah. They really were trying to go American Hi-Fi. They're going to be a big new thing for Island Records. And they... They really weren't. Yeah, I mean, the singer still, like, looked like he was, like, 20 and was actually, like, 40 or something. So, that was... That was the thing. For what it's worth, uh, a lot of reviewers in the major publications were pretty harsh on this one. Uh, some quotes include, they are a band still searching for an identity two years after Flavor of the Week. Uh, another one described them as full of agreeable sass. My favorite, a peppy though derivative kick of suburban brat rock, but once this sugar high effect fades, they're as fresh as overchewed bubblegum. I cannot imagine being so mean to this record. Like, it's not a good record, but it's... I don't, I don't know. It's, you know what? Like, it's like, it hasn't too... Like, it has energy and it has, like, thought put in it. It's just not good. <laughs> like, it's a, it's a very endearing record for a lot of things. Especially, like, you know, this is... The, the fucking reference every fucking band under the sun, which is like, okay. And, like, they don't... So, here's the thing. Do you know there's a level of we wanted to do this here? 
because they're not referencing things that like the record buying public at the time would be into. Like, you don't reference like My Bloody Valentine to get record sales, right? Especially like in the 2000s where they weren't still like discovered again as a music thing, music nerd thing they won't still like. Mm. So there is a level of, I don't know, personality and love that you can hear into this from like a lot of choices that I don't think were necessarily made for marketing sake. But it also isn't good. <laughs> that is the problem. It also isn't good. And um, yeah, but I cannot imagine being mean to it. The The definite part of it is that I totally understand the criticism that this feels generic. The next track we're going to talk about is explicitly designed to mimic their biggest single. And beyond that, most of what you can say about this record is comparing it to influences they've acknowledged in interviews. I mean, I'll be honest, this record sound this record feels like a more accomplished version of the um, first SR71 record we talked about on the podcast. And it is better than that. Which is not saying a lot. The first SR71 record is one of the worst things I listened for the podcast. But this is better, so I don't know. It's um, this record is very much a D minus with like good job, like scribbled underneath. Well, speaking of scribbles underneath the title track, how about we talk about track two, the breakup song? One more thing. I'm gonna repeat myself. This feels like a song that SR71 would write, but less misogynistic. There is a video for this. Uh, it's Skate and Extreme Sports bloopers behind the band while they play on a roof. Yeah, this is sort of like a very halfway tongue-in-cheek song, very like upbeat song about bringing up with someone. Does reference a bunch of bands, including again my bloody Valentine and the bit that is like give me back your my records and stuff. Most of what I thought is these are some basic ass records. Would you please give me my records back? My bloody Valentine, the Pixies, Cheap Trick, and Back in Black. I mean, for the early two thousand, I don't think my bloody Valentine and the Pixies were particularly basics. Hey, do you know what came out shortly before this? Mm-hmm. Fight Club. Oh. 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 This guy was definitely into Fight Club. Yeah. I'm just saying, when he's talking about he has Pixies records, he means I've got a copy of Where Is My Mind and The Greatest Hits. Yes, that might be cruel of me to say, but also I said it. No, that's, that's completely fair. Um, 
And there is a level of intentional cheesiness in the song. I mean, it is called the breakup song. And I don't know. This feels like something... I'm going to put it this way. This feels like something that Sam 41 will execute with more edge. Yes. Uh, it's by design meant to mimic flavor of the week. It has a lot of similar riffs in the chorus. But uh, none of them said on the record, because I did look, oh yeah, this is meant to be the the opposite or the end of that relationship or that girl getting out of the bad relationship. It's just a song where the girl gets dumped. And this is the start of a game I play on this record called Count How Many Times That They Lose a Girlfriend. Here's one. Uh, it's like Pikmin, but with girlfriends. Please do not hurl your girlfriends at a giant critter to try and get a battery back. No, they're trying to get their drums back. Ha! <laughs> okay, that's pretty funny, just imagining someone... <laughs> Damn it. There's you've, you've put me in the worst position because there's no way I can describe this that doesn't make me sound like a horrible person. Next song? Sure. The next track is Beautiful Disaster, and it is much better than the 311 song by the same name. I will give it that. Eleven uh, song of the same name. Um, uh, it's fart rock reggae. Well, this is just fart rock. Yes, but it doesn't feel appropriative. <laughs> Fair. I don't think any of this record is like again, and that's another reason why I don't don't think I can master hate for it or like really big dislike. I don't think any of their lyrics on this record are problematic, so far at least. Um, we'll go through a couple, but... No, none of this, despite the fact that they are just 13 it up and throwing in a bunch of swears at different times, seems like it's, ah, that bitch, that whore, no, nothing of the sort. So, you know, yeah. it's still... I, I mean, the breakup song is better, but in a... Like, yeah, like, if you're from a breakup, you're allowed to say that your partner was shitty. Like, that's fine. You're allowed to do that. When uh, I was listening to that one, I was going, oh, no, did they take a turn? And then I immediately looked over and saw the track was called The Breakup Song. And I'm like, OK, you get one. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, as long as you're not horrible and weird about it, you can be bitter about a breakup. And it's fine. Also, on the other hand... They are so fucking lightweight about anything that it's very difficult for them to get uh, offensive or anything. So that's sort of the counterpoint to that. It's like, yeah, of course they're not problematic. They are not anything. Yeah, this is an 11-track album that goes 36 minutes. It's very quick. Beautiful Disaster is just like the battiest song ever. It feels like them trying to do their sort of kind of... Um, Velvet Revolver Sleazy Rock thing, but 
very milk toasty, very... It's like, this is a song that I should enjoy to a point. It has hard guitars. It has like, okay, this verse that sort of builds some tension. But it feels like everything they try to do is like watered with like 50% water. And I cannot point it to anything specific. Like, it's not a specific thing. Like, the singer has a voice that's almost good. The guitar is almost good. Everything is almost good. Everything moves to almost being an enjoyable song. But it's just so lightweight. Especially for what it's supposed to be, which is like a hard rock song. It's like, ah, you you almost got there. So Beautiful Disaster is interesting to me because I started trying to see if someone other than Stacy Jones did lead vocals on any track, but there are no credits for track by track um, who handled that. So as far as I know, he's listed as lead vocalist across the album. I saw nothing about some specific tracks where other people, which means that his vocals are going in an entirely different direction on this track, a little more nasally, but... That, combined with the fact that the song shifts pacing a few times, saves this. It's so short, it never drags, and it has an interesting flow without being the sort of thing that I've decried a few times, where you clearly just stapled together three half-songs into one. Well, see, if you wanted more information on this record, you should have go and read the secret making-of of the record, Stacy Jones' Diary. That was actually a very good 2000s reference, but also, I'm incredibly mad at you, and now I'm imagining Renee Zellweger as the lead of this band. <laughs> I mean, they both have, like, pretty nice blonde hair. The The other thing is, I totally forgot American Wedding, the third American Pie movie happened, but The Art of Losing was also on that soundtrack. Of course it was. I'm going to be honest. I know I saw that movie. I don't remember anything about that third American Pie movie. I mean, that is me with most of my life. I, I know I've been in most of my life, but I don't remember anything from it. Save me. Next track. I've been so low. Yeah, I've been so strong. Take something It's better than nothing Anything That you've got to Save me as a ballad uh, I don't know that it counts as a ballad It seems just whiny to me it's, it's one of those, like, ballad, slow, 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 big kind of songs. And it's, uh, um, I don't want to close my eyes. It's that shit. It is, it is Aerosmithy. Someone needs to count how many <laughs> don't want to miss a thing songs we reviewed on this podcast, because everyone has that song. <laughs> yeah, well... 
Let's not. Let's not talk about Aerosmith. Did Aerosmith was Aerosmith cancelled? Um, Steven Tyler has always been a disgusting human being, but fair. Fair. I mean, fair. But here's the thing, I don't reference I Don't Wanna Miss a Thing because I think it's a good song. I reference it because I think it's a song that a lot of people just took as a template because it was successful. I Don't Wanna Miss a Thing is a dreadfully boring song. It fits for what is one of the most boring Michael Bay movies. Mm-hmm. Um, no, actually, like, so Save Me has... I actually found the guitar on this song probably the most interesting thing this record has done so far. It's like it has this weird jungly sort of like almost like not bluesy but sort of like jungly weird guitar on the ballady part before it goes like, you know, butt shouts. Um and yeah, it's like, okay, that is that is like I don't wanna miss a thing mixed with like Alice in Chain. I guess. The feedback on the guitar in the chorus really set my teeth on edge, and it only appears there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess very feedbacky and very loud. Also, this song was so slow that I did spend a lot of time looking at the cover for the album at this point, and it made me realize I think I own this coat in dress form. Oh, nice. It's a, it's a rather pleasant pattern. I would not try to scale a wall wearing nothing but it. Isn't it, like, I assume this was, like, one of those uh, hospital gowns? It looks a little like it, but it has pockets, which you don't usually get on a disposable hospital gown. Fair. By the way, for who doesn't have the collar right in front of their face right now, it's a person with, like, a really weird coat slash gown and nothing else on, sort of, like, scaling a, like, suburban fence. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's definitely a coat because it doesn't tie in the back and it has the pockets, but she also appears to be wearing nothing but this coat from what we see. So, you know, if she makes it over that fence, she's going to accidentally flash the birthday party she's sneaking into. <laughs> That's right. I stared at this cover so long during the taking of notes for this album, I created an entire scenario to justify what we're looking at. You have a little narrative. That's great. Well, how about we talk about... every. Every song has a solo. We should talk about the fact that every song has a solo, and all of them are, like, two notes. Yeah, they're not very long. I don't think I would have noticed that if you hadn't mentioned it, but I, it definitely happens. It's interesting, because we are in the era of pop punk where, like, solos are starting to not be a thing anymore. Because Blink-182 doesn't have solos, you know? You know what is starting to be a thing in the pop culture? Yeah? You want to talk about nothing left to lose? So, um, this one I had heard on the radio, and it's fast, which is good, because 
This is the one where they try rapping. Well... I... yeah, I guess it's... So is this more rapping... Aside from the vernacular where they just... say things that maybe is not super appropriate for like a bunch of white guy to try and appropriate um is this more rapping than what good charlotte did in the record with their sort of half wrapped flow yes but it's only locked to one track yeah this is painful yep um I would have described the last track as the low point of the record, except this follows immediately after it. And it's like, oh, no. And then the final bit where they reveal, oh, yeah, no, now that you're gone, I'm moving on. It's like, did you get dumped and then you decided to become that dude? Oh, no. Also, that takes us up to two Lost Girls. Like musically, this is probably fine without the, without them trying to make it like a rap thing. This just sounds like a Sam Forty One track where they pumped up those like hip hop influences to an uncomfortable level. <laughs> we put the My Black Friend slider up to eight. It's interesting because like other bands were doing this and. Like, Sum 41 had hip-hop influences, Good Charlotte really had hip-hop influences, and they never really came out as appropriative or, like, weird to us. This really pumps that shit up to a level that I am not as comfortable with, and it's, like, a lot more noticeably, like, weird than what Sam did. Well, here's the thing. It's 2003. Hip-hop has already been mainstream. We already know white people can do hip-hop without it being cringy. The Beastie Boys have had a career for 20 years on and off with missteps and all. Eminem is around at this point. As you mentioned, Good Charlotte and Sum 41 are groups that grew up or have been in the industry and listened to hip-hop while developing their own sound. This is a bunch of guys who come off as exceedingly white, to the point that one of them will become the music director for Miley Cyrus, all deciding that we got to get this all out of our system and chase this trend and tell you about the bitches in the back. Yeah, it's the, it's the verbiage that does it, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's the lyrics. Poncho, check this rhyme. Poncho Villa was a friend of mine. I get fucked up, holla back, y'all, and I kick it like Jackie Chan with my kung fu style. I'll get rid of you in a while, yeah. Now, how much, how much did you wince hearing me do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is gonna be one of the things that gets taken out of context if we ever make it, like, big in the podcasting world. If we ever get, like, a... Uh... A Joe Rogan Spotify deal? People would bring up this bit. Oh, that would that would absolutely be some Sophie's Choice shit between my artistic integrity or all the money in the world if I was offered Joe Rogan deals. <laughs> I wonder if I could do enough HGH to just suddenly look like a swollen muscle like he does. 
You got a Spotify deal, but you also have to advocate for anti-vax stuff every episode. If it doesn't have to be every episode, maybe. It does have to be every episode. I, I actually don't know what Joe Rogan does. I never listen to an episode of whatever he does. I just know that he has very bad opinions about vaccines, apparently. There is a term that was described uh, to just sum up a specific type of sound, like a dumb guy's idea of a smart guy, and they're called dumb guy whisperers. <laughs> oh, Joe Jordan Rogan, Peterson. Jordan, yeah, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> like, that's exactly what we're talking about when it's like a dumb guy's idea of a smart guy. Elon Musk, exact same energy absolute idiots if you know anything about what they're discussing, but they can con the dumbest people into the room into opening their wallets and going, you know, I think he's onto something. Mm-hmm. Hideo Kojima. On, again, on a less malicious kind of way, I think those are the Metal Gear games. <laughs> um, I could definitely see that, but I also believe that there is an intent and planning behind those, at least to a certain point. Uh, the, the message definitely has become muddled by the time you have the child soldier army. So what is the next song? Teenage Alien Nation. No, wait, that is D-A-N. Oh. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> you have to do it in reverse. <laughs> A-N-T. 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 So, uh, yeah, the, the pun on this one is kind of obvious, but it did make me imagine Alien Nation babies based on the old 90s syndicated show. <laughs> what? Alien Nation was this occasionally running series where... Are you familiar with District 9? The dude movie? Yeah, the Blomkamp movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Alien Nation is, what if this it was more than one ship and instead a bunch of humanoid aliens showed up on the planet and it's a giant thing, a, it's a giant metaphor for refugees and trying to use sci-fi for discussion about these things, racism, the like. Um... It's a cop drama that follows a pair of a human and alien partner dealing with all the sorts of things that come out of this world. Oh, it's Max Landis Bright. Ugh, yeah, it's basically that, but competent. <laughs> Go on. I hate that that comparison's accurate, you know. Well, I gotta mention the most cursed things on the planet today. That is, that is my role. Uh, I suppose that is my penance for rapping last song <laughs> but yeah i was just imagining a muppet baby style version of alien nation when i thought about that fair uh, this is another song that tries to be hard rock 
and has a very cheesy melody and it just doesn't land in any kind of way and I don't have a lot to say about it. It once again feels like SR-71 but less, less, less SR-71. Yeah, it's another one where the vocals are in a weird nasally pitch and this is a very repetitive song. It's mostly just chanting the whole thing. However, it is about losing another girl. Is it? Yeah. So what if you don't like me? I don't give a fuck if you don't like me. I can change my lock. Forget about tomorrow. You and me, we're going down in sorrow. Okay, but that could be about society. You and me? Yeah. Yeah. I still think that could be about society. This this definitely seems like a talking directly to... So I'm going... To, we could call it a point five, But I would definitely say this is a losing a girl song. From there, we go on to Rise. How did you feel about this? I mean, I don't know. I didn't get the Xbox One at lunch, so I didn't actually play the game. But it looked like, you know, fairly, almost like a tech demo. Looks fairly fine for being a lunch. I think I actually own that. Yes, I do own Rise Son of Rome. Wow. That must have been a free gift somewhere. I am struggling to find anything to say about these songs. They are all like alt-rock songs that do absolutely nothing. Nothing that's particularly interesting. They're surely trying. This feels like when the... Was it the Jonas Brother? No, this feels like when One Direction tried to make a rock song. I didn't know that happened. Oh yeah, there's like um, one of the songs on their third record. It's sort of like a rock song, and they censor the swear, they self-censor the swears on it, and I found find it one of the most funny moments in music ever. This is not that kind of level. I think there is some artistry still in the, um, in a lot of the guitar playing and some of the percussions, but. It's just so sanitized, and it's all based around, like, very sing-alongy melodies that don't... I actually thought this was a very Soundgarden track. I could see it. I mean, Soundgarden is basically hard rock. Like, Soundgarden is like Black Sabbath, basically, to a lot of levels. They were definitely on the edgier end of alt-rock. So, here's the thing. Rock to a level is supposed to be... Even the best rock crew ever is supposed to be somehow abrasive, right? The guitar, there is something in the mixing that makes those guitars feel so lightweight that it just doesn't, it, it, it doesn't hit. Um, this song does have some screamoing at the end, which is more or less some like, you know, really guttural screams at the end. And it's like they feel so out of place with how the rest of this record is produced, which is 
It's very lightweight. This is all that I can say. The guitars don't hit. The percussions are mixed really low in the mix. This is mixed like a vocal pop record. And the song are trying to be hard rock. And the two things don't mix well. And the songs are also not that great. The songs are all like very simple sing-alongy things. And mm, doesn't work. This is a stretch that feels very reminiscent of other bands, blatantly so. I mean, I know we've already called out, hey, we redid or kind of sequelized one of our own songs to start, but this feels like Soundgarden to me. The next track, This Is The Sound, feels like Oasis, straight up. The sky above remaining clear and blue, it's nothing new. The radio keeps playing static call, your favorite songs. Why does everyone keep on bringing me back to you? This is the sound broken down. And this is the last train home, me home, me underground. And this is the fog, don't catch me. Is he is even doing the fucking Gallagher voice? He is, yeah. Um... The, the screech comes back on the chorus, and so this is the point where I looked up who produced this album. This is the longtime producer for Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Ooh, oh, oh. Yeah. Okay. Like, let me just list some of the things Nicholas Launay has done and be like, how did he get this sound? This is a guy who has worked with Public Image Limited, The Killing Joke. Midnight Oil, NXS, and I mean big time era NXS, The Talking Heads, Semisonic, Silver Chair, Blue October, Nick Cave, obviously, The Living End, The Ataris and the Yeah Yeah Yeahs a few month a uh, few years after this. And probably my favorite, Dude's done a Black Rebel Motorcycle Club album. And an American Hi-Fi record. <laughs> Yeah. Also, uh, a couple of Arcade Fire albums. Huh. Arcade Fire is one of those bands that I never quite got into, but I understand why people like them. Same. I think I'm just not Canadian enough to enjoy Arcade Fire as a whole. But yeah, This Is The Sound is a lost Gallagher Brothers B-side. So we said that other songs on this record are aping other genres, but they're all have that kind of American hi-fi sound, which is not a good sound, but they have it. This is straight up them doing a Oasis cover. Yeah. It even has the, 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 that kind of little solo they do. The repetition at the end. Don't catch me when I fall. Just catch me when I fall. This yeah. is fucking don't look back in anger. Mm-hmm. But then comes the part of the album that is the most challenging to discuss. Okay. Welcome to American Hi-Fi Super Turbo Extreme Edition. Can you find anything to say about Gold Rush?
walkie talk man. Damn. The walkie talkie man. Da -da 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 Do you remember walkie talkie man? It was on the on Elite Beat Agent. I recognize the song, not from Elite Beat Agents. I have never played a Beat Agents. You never played a Little Bit Agent? I'm gonna be honest, I don't like a lot of DS rhythm games because of their reliance on the stylus in a way that never worked with my wrist. I listened to this two times trying to come up with anything to say about it, and all I could write down was generic butt rock track. I mean, isn't that the rest of the record, too? Yup. She's on fire, like a rocket spinner out of control. Try to stop her, but you just don't know how to keep it inside. Can you keep on turning out away from my turn? Same old story, cousin, that's I learned. Gotta make it inside. She don't know what she does to be a girl. Uh, yeah. Okay, come on, let's speed through this. Let's speed run this. Uh, the next one is built for speed. Yep. And it turns out that uh, she's gonna. You know. The last couple of tracks have all been the opposite of losing a girl songs. Both Gold Rush and Built for Speed are, I gotta hold on to this girl. <laughs> they learned their lesson from the previous tracks. The last one was about gold digging. This one is, I gotta get a girl like that. I need your girl. Give me your girl. Please bring me ten girls to finish this quest. <laughs> I'm gonna need ten girl asses, thanks. This is actually not cute. Like, this is not trying to be a heavy song, which I think helps a lot the sound. This is more like a lightweight rock and roll song, almost like power poppy. And I feel, at least sound-wise, this feels a lot more coherent than a lot of other songs on this record because they're not trying to go super hard and the production works better when they're sort of being pop-rocky more than alt-rocky. The generic chugga-chugga-punk but with energy is helpful. And then there's a solo. I don't know why they keep having solos in the song if they're not... It's under three minutes with a solo. Let's go to the last song. All right. It's happy. Make a big scene. You kiss your chest when you want something. Fake a smile now. You got it all. And that ought to get you nowhere. What you say to me? I know how to stay out of focus. Keep your head down. This song is sort of works. I don't, it's weird as a closer because this feel. So this record feels like they they've been trying to find the sound for like eleven tracks, and this feels like the most competent imitation of hard rock. Hmm. 
this actually, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying that it's good, but if you told me that this is a Velvet Revolver B-side, which is not a high bar to clear, I use Velvet Revolver a lot because they are sort of like the mediocre standard for hard rock, not because they're a good band, as an example. I get that. But if you were to tell me that this is a Velvet Revolver um, B-side, I would tell you, okay, yes, it is. So they finally achieved mediocrity with this song. That is the best that I can say. I am very mean today, and I don't want to be mean to American Hi-Fi because they seem completely fine people. They don't do anything offensive. They don't do anything, like, mind-boggling stupid. They all went on to, like, better careers. They, They seem to like music fine. They seem to be in it, you know, partly for the money, but partly because they like music and they have bands they take inspiration from. None of this record is good, and the closer of this record is them finally achieving mediocrity. (laughs) This song is fine. (laughs) This song doesn't have any big thing that I can fault it for. It just sounds like a Velvet Revolver (laughs) B-side. certainly is that's it i mean that from like an a whole ass philosophical point this album is this album is are we going to the final thoughts here do we have any thoughts no thoughts had empty i don't know it it's a very interesting record in that i was excited to see what they brought because I figured it's got to be a step up, although they're not going to do anything as interesting as Two Stone Nintendo. We knew that going in. But somehow my expectations were low and I was still let down by it. Yeah, I... This record is fundamentally useless. I see no universe in which... It makes sense to recommend this record to anyone, not because it's awful, but because it's just trying to be other things and failing at it, and not failing at it in an interesting way. So it's like, okay, even if you like this thing, like, that's the thing, even if you're like big into hard rock or whatever, there are a thousand better bands that that actually made made hard rock with a with a you know with with competency and production that fits the genre uh this is the record that a middle schooler buy and gets them into like heavier music because it's accessible and maybe then you listen to the band they you know they reference and they or listen to the bands that these people sound like 
and you get into better music and then maybe have a nostalgia for this, which it's not a bad thing. Again, I cannot find myself to hate this record because they all seem pretty well-natured and, you know, again, I don't know, you know, you, we used to have the segment what does the person who listened to this for, like, all of their life is like, and I have no idea about that. But I do feel that if you got into this when you were young, you probably got into better music as time went on, even partially because of this record. And that is cool. I feel like the person who only listened to this album for 20 years ended up remarkably well-adjusted but bland. Same song, different chorus. I don't know, I need, we need to, we usually do a closer here, but uh, I don't know. This was the episode, fucking send us an email. Get out of this town, pot. no, I don't even remember our email. Don't send us an email. Send us a Twitter, at us, at G-G-O-O-T-T podcast, and, um, and yeah, and that is our podcast. Do you have anything to plug, Sable? You can find all of my work and other shows, cancelled or not, at uh, hellscaper.com. Did your did your movie podcast actually end? Yes, it's actually going to end. We we watched the bad Hellraiser, and within a couple of days, my co-host went, "We're done. Pick one more." Oh my god! Well, yeah, freeze up your schedule. It or does. Whatever, whatever, whatever thing we could, whatever spinoff we can do about get out of the town. I knew that we were already going to be in trouble after that episode when partway through it, he simply said the words, hearing you describe this is boring me as much as watching the movie did, but twice as slow. <laughs> well, and you're going to always find me on Twitter at ACC the Moon, and we do not have a Patreon. But if you want to support us, feel free to give us ideas for podcasts that Sybil's can Sybil can do now that her movie podcast is over. Oh, you don't want to do that because I might take them. I mean, I don't have to participate in it. Feel free to do whatever podcast you want. Fair enough. Bye bye. Hey, bye. If it's uh, like uh, I don't know. It's a, what is the thing that I like? If it's a Wild Arms podcast, I wanted to play those games at some point. If we ever do a season of Wild Arms on Lightning Strikes Thrice, I will invite you. Because you said.